You can take your Bibles, if you want to join in our scripture reading or our, our time in the Word today, and turn to John's Gospel, the fourth chapter. And that's where we're going to be working out of in a little bit. Last week I talked to you about kind of my tact or my plan for Christmas this year is looking at three themes that are kind of large biblical themes, but they're kind of particularly housed in Christmas. Uh, that's the themes of waiting, which we talked about last week, gifts, which is obviously a big Christmas theme, and then the final one is joy. Today we're going to be talking about gifts, and, and I'm going to read a passage from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 to get us started, but we'll end up in John chapter 4 uh, if you want to be there waiting for me. So from Matthew chapter 2, it tells us a story that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time that the star appeared. And he sent, to them, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word, that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that, had been, that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Traditionally, the giving of gifts at Christmas time is associated with the visit of these magi, what we generally or most often call the wise men, these people who came from the east. Um, they arrive sometime after Jesus' birth, uh, and they present their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh in honor to the newborn king. This is where our gift-giving tradition is often connected or, or thought to have begun. And if we think about this as the origin of the giving of gifts, uh, as the, where this practice started, we may be kind of uh, shocked to see how it's devolved over the years, right? From giving gifts to God and worshiping the newborn king to, you know, really, let's be honest, in, in, in our practice presence, it's gone uh, for, for a large portion, not everyone, but it's turned from gift giving into gift getting, right? We have long lists, and, and it's not about getting that one special particular gift that's been well thought of. It's more about how big was your haul this year? Did you get everything you wanted? How many times will we ask that of people even in the coming days? How did you get what you wanted? when our question probably should be, did you give what you wanted to give to that person? So things certainly have changed from the beginning. Uh, 
But the idea of gifts and gifting, that is the giving of gifts, is a, is a serious biblical theme. It really uh, compasses the entire scriptures. In Leviticus, Many of the sacrifices that are described for us to, to do in Leviticus are often referred to as, as a gift to the Lord. This sacrifice is a gift to the Lord. I think that reveals the heart and motivation that God wanted behind the giving of offerings to Him. That it was something we wanted to do. That we were giving a gift to God because of our love for Him, our admiration of Him, our gratitude to Him. And it's not the idea of, well, you got to. Here's the rules. Here's what I'm expecting. Pay your dues. No, that, that our giving to the Lord is, is supposed to come from a heart of love and gratitude and, and willingness instead of obligation. In Numbers chapter 18, when God establishes the priesthood, calling all the Levites into service in the tabernacle, the priesthood itself is referred to as a gift from God, both to God or for God and for the people. We might call this our religion today, that this is actually a gift from God, that the orderly practice and worship of God, as well as people to kind of serve us and aid us in the orderly worship of God is, is a gift from God, that, that this is something, this connection between him and us is something that is special and given to us. In Ecclesiastes, the wisdom writer says this in chapter 5, verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. This is the gift of God. That, that our very lives, everything we have and what we do is a gift from God. And God, we should strive to enjoy that all the days of our small existence in here. It's like when you give something to somebody and you've picked out that gift, you, you want them to utilize it. You want it to bless them. You want them to enjoy the thing that they've been given. Uh, I was just showing somebody a, a gift I got recently uh, this week. It's a clock. And it has the normal hour, you know, hour and minute hand. But there's a special hand on this clock, and it's not a second hand. It's a day of the week hand. And so that I can now remember, because I'm having trouble lately remembering what day of the week it is. I keep getting confused. And so somebody gave me a clock that will remind me, oh, it's Monday. Oh, it's Tuesday. Oh, it's Wednesday. It's got that special hand. I will utilize that. <laughs> It will be uh, very much enjoyed, just as I can remind myself of, oh, I'm supposed to be at church today. <laughs> this idea that everything we have from God is a gift is echoed in the, in the New Testament in James chapter 1. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That, that literally everything we have, everything about us in this world, is a gift from God, even our very lives. Gifts are talked about quite a bit in the New Testament. Much of that revolves around what's commonly referred to in our day and time as the gifts of the Spirit. And, and to be honest with you, there's been much debate and even division over the understanding of these gifts and that things revolve around that topic. 
That's kind of ironic when you think about it. This thing that God gave us in the New Testament, this special gift that we have is turned out to put brothers and sisters at odds with one another and cause us to be divided. It's like two kids, ever had two kids, and one got one thing for Christmas and one got something else for Christmas, and they said, I don't like mine, I wanted what they got, and that's not fair. Also, in the New Testament, there's a number of references made to another gift, a very special gift, a spiritual gift. And that's really what I want us to turn our attention to today in John chapter 4. Oh. In John chapter 4, verse 10, it says this, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, this one verse takes place in a, in a, in a story you may remember. Uh, Jesus was at a well uh, in Samaria, and the Samaritan woman comes, and he asks her to give him a drink. But, but think about just this thing. If you knew what the gift of God was, you would have asked if you knew who I was, you would have asked. And so it made me wonder and beg the question, do we understand what the gift of God actually is? As we enter Christmas, and there's going to be a lot of talk about the gift of God, the gift of God, the gift of God, and gifts. There's going to be much talk over the next two weeks about the idea behind gifts. And so today I want to talk about the gift of God and, and exactly what that is. And first, let me make a, a few things. Um, the cross, I don't think the cross is the gift of God. I think the cross is the price for the gift of God. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you, know, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is with you from whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. In verse Corinthians and later in chapter 7, it will say the same idea that you've been bought with a price. In John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, He, talking about Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And that word is not a word we use very commonly. Some would define it as atoning a, a sacrifice. It's the payment made for our sins. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And I know none of you have ever received a speeding ticket but I have once, and I had to pay a penalty uh, for going a little faster than I was supposed to. That was the propitiation, the, the atoning sacrifice for my error. And the Bible tells us that, that this price we've been bought with, that this price of our sins is Jesus on the cross. And so we do have a special gift, but it's a costly gift. It's a very expensive gift because it was purchased by the blood of Christ. And so I think the, the cross, when we see the cross, we see the, the price of the gift. I also don't think the resurrection is the gift. I, I, I look and think about, and this is just kind of how I put it together in my head sometimes, is that the, rec uh, that the resurrection is the receipt that, that we get. Because, you know, when you pay for something, you get a receipt, to kind of a proof of purchase. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is vain and your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, he's, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead, now here's the verse, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What it's saying is, if Christ isn't raised, the price hasn't been paid. You're still in your sins. But the point is, Christ has been raised. This is proof that your sins have been atoned for, that your sins have been paid for. And so the resurrection is kind of the proof of purchase, the, the proof that God paid for our sins. We're, our hope is we're not in our sins anymore. How? Why do we have this hope? Because Christ has been raised. That's the proof or the receipt that God says, it's been taken care of. Your debt has been canceled. So if those two things that we often maybe talk about as being the gift are the gift, what is the gift? And so what I want to do today is, is talk about four or, or talk about some facets of the gift of God that, that may, uh, people may have misconceptions about. There, there are three facets I'm going to talk about about what the gift is kind of leading us up to answer this question. What is the gift of God? So if you're there in John 4, I want to read a little bit more of that passage so we can see that. Uh, we'll start with chapter 4, verse 10. Now Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did the sons and his livestock? The answer, by the way, to that question is, yes, I am greater than Jacob. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, <coughs> everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty and have to come back here and draw water anymore. It's interesting that even she in this circumstance kind of misses a, a bit of the point. And one of the overarching ideas that we must kind of grasp is that this gift of God is not a physical gift. It's a spiritual gift. And she wanted it so she didn't have to travel back and forth to get water anymore. And Jesus is talking about something much more profound. And so this is kind of the premise. Maybe people don't ask for the gift of God because they don't understand what the gift actually is. If they had a better understanding of, of what it, the gift is, maybe they would do what he said. You would ask and I would give. And so I want to look at these couple of facets that cause some misconceptions about what the gift is. First, the gift is grace. If you, in that interaction, Jesus said to her, if you would have asked, I would have given. Notice what he doesn't say. 
If you would have paid for, if you would have begged, if you would have been good, if you would have done something, I would have given. All he says, all you got to do is ask. I would have given. And so one facet that people must understand is that this is a, it's a grace act. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. That it's a free gift given not based on who we are, not based on what we've done, not based on who we could become, based in God and who he is, loving and gracious. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 kind of highlight this idea. It says, for, gra- for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. And so that the salvation and this, this act of grace that God gives to us is a gift from Him. And see, what I think people do, and where I think people misunderstand this a little bit, is, is they tend to think about Christianity as being nothing but a bunch of rules. You know, do this, do this, don't do that, or that, or that. Or that either, you know, creating some kind of big cosmic naughty and nice list, right? You know, if you're really good, you'll get a gift. And if you're not so good, you're on the naughty list and you're getting some coal. In the Christian context, it's hellfire and brimstone that you get, not coal. And I think people misunderstand that this freedom, this, this willingness that, that you don't have to be for God to love you. There's a concept that you've, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this. It's been said for a long time. But every time I say it, I marvel at it. And probably grace is one of the things I struggle to kind of personally understand and grasp the most in, within our faith. And, and it's this statement. You can't do anything to make God love you any more than he does. Likewise, you can't do anything to make God love you less than he already does. It's not about being on the nice list and being on the naughty list and doing your best to get off the naughty list and get on the nice list so you receive a gift. No, the gift is free and it's gracious. And we don't have to anything. That God accepts us just where we're at. And so when we sign up for this gift, we're not, oh, now I'm going to, Obey the rules. I'm willing to finally do what God wants. No, it's a free gift. Are there expectations? Well, sure. Like there are in any relationship. Because one core idea of this gift is relational. And when you establish a relationship with somebody, especially an intimate, caring relationship, there's expectations, right? When I asked Shelly to marry me, there was an expectation that I would stop dating other people right? That's just kind of a given. If I'm going to establish this relationship, that means certain expectations on the other side. And that's how the relationship with God is seen throughout the Bible is this relationship. And every time somebody, uh, the children of Israel start worshiping idols and fall into idolatry, it's always referred to as, as kind of being unfaithful. You're cheating on me. You're having a relationship with somebody else. And so the expectation is there that, that, that this relationship will have certain effects on our lives. 
But that's just because we're choosing to ask for the relationship. And God says he will give it to us if we ask. So there's not a, a checklist. There's not that gold star chart like you may have seen in kindergarten or whatever. And with a naughty and nice list as in our particular context. That the gift is a free thing. Just as you are. Another facet I'd like to talk about is, is the gift is life. The gift is life, real life. Here's what he says in that verse to the woman. He says, if you would, I would have given you what? Living water, and it would have welled up in you to eternal life. That life is very much connected with the idea of the gift. It's one facet of the gift. In John 1, where John's gospel starts off with the coming of Christ, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That this very idea of who God is and that the life we have is a gift from God, but that, that life itself is part of this gift. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he, he paints this picture of heaven. And the people, it's people leaving uh, this place called Greytown where it's raining all the time and it's gray and dreary and, and kind of very unpleasant. And they get on a bus and the bus flies up to heaven. And when they get to heaven, they start talking about heaven and they call it reality. That the gray world is the shadow land, is this, is this kind of not real place. And that heaven is really reality. It's the true reality. We often think about this, this, this life that we live as reality. We call this place where we, our current existence, we call this reality and we find it dynamic and exciting and often we think about the life to come and, well, it's not so dynamic and not so exciting. And I think this is one of the misconceptions people have is that, that the existence we have now is real life, <coughs> exciting and changing and growing and, and experiences to have. And, and what's to come? Well, it's really less than life. I mean, let's be honest. Many of us, if I did a quick search just on the computer, heaven. And I got a bunch of images of clouds and little fat cherubs and some of them playing harps. And, you know, the, the thought of spending eternity, yeah, it's, I get to live forever sitting on a cloud playing a harp. That's exciting. I mean, that sounds more painful than anything, right? I'm going to spend eternity. I don't like harps very much. Now, if, they, if I got eternity to play a guitar, maybe I'd be a little bit more excited about it because it'd probably take me eternity to learn how to play a guitar. Um, but, but, that, you know, but it, it just seems less than life. And in Lewis's book, what he's pointing out and what he's trying to help us understand is that the life to come is more than life now. That this is a shadow this is really, we are living in death. We are not living in life. The moment you were born, you started a process of dying. Now, it goes up a hill for most of us and then down the hill. 
And some of us are somewhere on the other side of that hill. And with my recent birthday, I think I've crested and gravity seems to be pulling fast. But that's the process. This is, we are really just dying. It's a very long 70, 80, 90, for some 100 year process. But it is one of constant death and dying and deterioration. That is what we call life. Isn't that backwards? We should call this death. Because when we enter heaven, that's real life. And we got this misconception of, of this is the really good thing and what's to come is kind of boring and, you know, eternal praise and worship and, you know, bowing down on the throne for a long time. And, and I think we just need to recapture the idea of life. That's what Jesus calls paradise that's what jesus talks about it will be eternal living and whatever living means dynamic and exciting and adventurous and changing and filled with joy and excitement anticipation everything that makes life worth living will be greatly heightened and if people understood that don't you think they would be going i want some of that the, to live on a world where there is no death, where there is no sin, where everything is perfect the way it was intended when God first made paradise. Oh, I want some of that. <laughs> you know, and so I think we need to help people understand that, that this is not as good as it gets. And that what's to come is by far more unimaginably than you can ever think of or imagine better and more living than you have ever lived before. That it will be living. The third facet of the gift that I want us to understand is that the gift is presence. And that's not like presence, it's presence. Here's what Jesus said to the woman. It says, the water I will give him will become in him. A spring. So Jesus is pointing out, I'm not just giving you living water, but this living water is going to abide in you. It's going to be part of who you are, and it's going to well up. It's going to grow and start to burst forth into life. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to the people, he preached this, the, this great sermon, and the people were cut to the heart. They were, they were, their hearts were broken. They said, what shall we do about, about who Jesus is? And he pointed out that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. One of those other verses we read, we talk about the temple, and that our, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And, and so one aspect of this gift is, is that God indwells us. He comes to bring his presence to us right now. Life, that eternal life, that that that. Uh, well, that spring of living water that's in us and starting to well up and help us understand the truth of eternal life is already in us right now. And I think people often look at the gift of God as something to come later. You know, they, they, they see it down the road. You know, there, there's, there's this time coming in the future 
when, okay, I'll get right with God later. I'll pick up the gift, you know, right before I depart. You know, a lot of people think of it as a departing gift, right? You know, I want it like, I'll take the gift of God about two weeks before I die, and it'll be good because I'm just going to wait till then. And what they don't realize, what they don't seem to understand is that it's a very immediate gift because the Spirit of God, the presence of God indwells us immediately. They think of it as something to come later. I'll wait and get right with God just at the right time. But what they need to understand is that special life starts immediately. That well, that spring in us starts to bubble up. It starts welling up inside of us as we grow and understand and experience God more fully. This is why people who have been Christians and have that living water can endure all kinds of circumstances. If you look at the, the history of the disciples who, who dealt with very difficult times, they did it with joy. They did it with uh, gusto because they were already living that life. They were already in the presence of God. They were, in, in a very real way, starting to experience heaven right here on earth. Because remember, the definition of heaven isn't a place of gold streets and pearly gates. The definition of heaven that we need to remember is wherever God is, that's heaven. Because heaven is defined by not what it is, but by who is there. So wherever God is, that's paradise. That's heaven. And so when the Holy Spirit comes into us, in a very real way, there's a kind of heaven within us. That's a place of joy, a place of contentment, a place of satisfaction that we can turn to God in those moments when the outside of our world is far less than heavenly that we have an internal place that we can commune with God, that we can be in his presence and start to right now taste the heavenly gift. So what I want us to understand that heaven itself isn't even the gift, that heaven, eternal life uh, are, are all uh, consequences of receiving the gift. So, so we're waiting for the completion of God's gift, but even right now we're partakers of it. We're starting to experience it because God's gift is immediate. It comes at that moment when we ask. That, that wellspring starts to well up because I think the best way to describe the gift of God is God himself. This is what God's offering to us, himself. There's nothing better to have than to have God. And that is the greatest gift there is. God himself with you in relationship. That because of that, you, you get joy. You get eternal life. You, you get uh, the, the presence of God. All that comes with him comes with him when we receive him. The culmination of that gifting i think is revealed at the end of the bible in revelation 21 it says this verse 3 and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of god is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god 
that the great hope we're waiting for isn't just to get to pearly, pearly gates and gold streets. It's to be with God himself. That's what he's offering himself. Revelation 22 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. A a phrase just talking about how they belong to Him. There's this intimate relationship. And just imagine what God's offering you creator of all the world the eternal being is saying if you ask i'll let you see my face if we understood that wouldn't we say can i have some of that i think i'd like to look into the face of god there's a famous painting i'm gonna show you maybe a modern version of the idea God says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door, we will come in and dwell with you, be with you, dine with you. And so the gift that God's offering, his presence, this gift of grace that that we don't earn and and, and that's not signing up for some kind of checklist, this, this gift of eternal, this gift of real life that starts now, This gift of his presence in our life that's going to change us is him just saying, hey, look, here I am. Do you want me? I'm the best thing there is. I'm what you were made for. That, I think, is really the gift of God. Amen.